0: 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse one, what a passage. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together today? These are the words of the apostle Paul and he's speaking from his heart to the church in Corinth. And now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of the Macedonian churches. We can barely comprehend what they were going through, but we understand their heart. And I pray we would have the same kind of heart today in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated, this message is entitled, The Joy of Giving, The Joy of Giving. I know you're thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> There was a comedian many years ago named Flip Wilson. How many of you remember Flip Wilson? You know, that's back when comedians were clean and and funny and not political. Amen. amen? (laughs) He once told a story about a preacher and his church. A preacher was trying to get the people. This was, of course, Flip Wilson was black and it was an all black church. And so I'm not gonna try to sound like an all black preacher or a black preacher this morning. But uh, he was trying to get his church uh, to give more. And he said in his sermon, if this church is going to get anywhere, it's going to have to crawl. Flip Wilson said, the people said, let it crawl, Reverend, let it crawl. And after it learns to crawl, the pastor said it has to learn to walk. And the people all shouted back, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. He got all excited when he heard that. The people were were into it. And so he said, well, after it walks, it needs to learn to run. And the people all shouted, let it run, Reverend, let it run. And the pastor said, well, if it's gonna run, the church needs more money. And they all shouted back, let it crawl, Pastor, let it crawl. (laughs) As I cross-reference our main passage for this morning in 2 Corinthians 8, I was not able to see a single time I've preached from this passage in the last 15 years or 20 years. It's been a very long time and as you know, I'm not real big on preaching, on tithing all the time and there are two reasons for that. One, because of certain TV preachers that never talk about anything else it has become a sticky subject. Nobody wants to hear about it because of those online and on TV that are manipulating people and there are people that are doing that. If you don't know that, I forewarn you, there are slippery, slippery politician sounding preachers out there that they will milk you dry for every penny that you have so they can buy more jets. Just a word of caution about that. I don't want to sound judgy, but after the first 50, 60, or 70 million in their bank account, which is the case, I wonder about their motives. And so I don't want to be in the same camp as them, and so I'm tempted just never to mention it. Uh, and also, the second reason I don't preach on tithing much is because so many of you are wonderful givers. This year we finished, or this last year, we finished above our budget needs, our budget requirements. And so I don't feel a need to just let you have it all the time about tithing. So you may ask, if it bothers some people, and since so many people are already giving, why bring it up at all? Well, because the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches tithing, it teaches giving. In fact, it's a substantial principle in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It preaches or speaks on both tithing and sacrificial giving and it would be irresponsible and frankly just cowardly for me not to mention anything that the Bible says and talks about just because it might bother someone. So before we begin, I wanna share with you a biblical mindset of giving in our lives that goes beyond money. And we think about giving in church, we think typically financially and that was a big part of it. When it came to tithing, it was financial. There are other ways to give in addition to that as well, in a heart of giving, and that's what I want us to have here at the church. But first, let's look at our passage for today. Now this is 2 Corinthians chapter eight. Uh, we, we started in verse one. We looked at the first couple of verses. I wanna read the bulk of the passage for you right now. It's verse one through seven. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians eight, one through seven. Paul says this, and now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now you have to notice a couple things in those few verses. He's talking about, as an example to the Corinthian church, he's talking about a group of churches in Macedonia, the Macedonian churches. And he says four things here. He says, first of all, they're in severe trials, and they have extreme poverty. Now, when the Apostle Paul, a tent maker, talks about extreme poverty, he knows what extreme poverty is, in danger of dying because you have no food to eat, you have nowhere to stay. When he says extreme poverty, he means extreme poverty. So he says that they have two great challenges. They have severe trials and extreme poverty. And in the midst of that, he talks, he says this, they have overflowing joy and they have rich generosity. He uses actually the word rich in referring to them. Now the Macedonian churches probably don't hear that word a lot in reference to them, but they were rich in their generosity. So two difficult things and two great descriptions of this wonderful, powerful church or group of churches. Look in verse three. For I testified that they gave us as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith in speech in knowledge in complete earnestness and in your love for us, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. So the reason Paul writes this passage, because the Corinthian Christians had made a promise to give in the previous year. But they hadn't followed through with their promise. With an actual gift itself, it was all talk. So Paul could have torn into them. They had on their own made a promise to Paul that they would give financially, but unlike the Macedonian churches who actually did give, the Corinthian churches said they would give, and when it came time to do it, they didn't do it. Do you know anybody, don't raise your hand, do you know anybody like that? When they say, oh yeah, I'm gonna do that, and you think, no they're not. You know, the last thirty times you told me you were going to do it, you didn't do it, and so I don't. I don't think you're going to do it this time. Even though they look you in the eyes, I'm, I'm going to do that. That's why the Bible would say, or Jesus said, "Let your yes be yes, and your no be no." You need to do what you say you're going to do. The Macedonian churches did. The Corinthian church was just all talk. So Paul could have torn into them, probably should have, or I would have torn into them, but he chose a more gentle approach. He used another group of churches, the Macedonian churches, very poor congregations, as an example. The churches in Macedonia had very little money, but they eagerly gave beyond their ability. They gave sacrificially. They actually pleaded with Paul for the privilege to give. They they begged him for the opportunity to give. Is that not extraordinary? It certainly was to Paul. And why? Why were these Christians so eager to give? They didn't have anything. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. Some of them probably had nowhere to live, nowhere to stay, and yet they wanted to give? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7 uh, first, and there's only two things, it's only two points this morning, it's a very simple passage. Paul says, uh, uh, they gave out of the grace of gilding. He he literally calls it the grace of giving in verse seven. What is the grace of giving? Did you catch that? If you go back to verse seven, but just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech, knowledge and complete earnestness in your love for us, see to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. It's a great term. As you give here at First Baptist Church, I wanna remind you and renew our commitment to you that whatever you, give, whatever you have given and whatever you continue to give is used wisely and carefully for the kingdom of God. I assure you, the staff is not getting rich and we aren't using the money for frivolous causes or unfruitful ministries. And of course, every penny we spend is accounted for and available for the congregation to see. And in fact, it's approved by you ahead of time during our December business meetings each year. It's God's money. We are aware that it is God's money and not our money. And as a church and as a staff, we have to give an account to God as to how well we invest in his and use his money for his kingdom. We also notice from our monthly receipts, that many of you are giving graciously. That is, you are participating in the grace of giving. So thank you for doing that. So what does the grace of giving actually mean? Well, it means that other people here and around the world are able to experience God's grace because you give. Through ministries and mission work, God's message of grace goes into the ears and into the hearts of people who otherwise would never hear about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's the grace of giving. Sometimes I think we put it in the plate or in the box or we, we do it online and we have no idea where the money is going or what it's being used for. We hope it's for something good. Well, I wanna assure you it is making a difference in the kingdom and in this church. Secondly, Paul tells us that giving is proportional. He talks about the grace of giving, but he also tells us it's proportional. A few verses after the passage that I just read. Back, just down a couple of verses in verse 11. If you look with me there, 2 Corinthians chapter eight, verse 11. He says this to the Corinthian church, he says, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. According to your means. So he says two things there. First of all, I pray that you would stop talking the talk and start walking the walk. I pray that what you said you were going to do, you actually will do. And then the second thing he says, the very last clause, according to your means. I like that. Paul doesn't say to the Corinthian church, you know the Macedonian churches gave beyond your, their means and so I expect you to give beyond your means. He could have gone to the Corinthian church and said, you dirty scoundrels, you haven't given what the Macedonian churches gave and they're dirt poor. I want you to show them up. I want you to give even more sacrificially to them. He could have let them have it and milked them dry, but he doesn't do that. He simply says conservatively, Hey, I just want you to give according to your means. Now you and I get that. You know, when we pay our taxes to our government, I don't want to have to give the same amount that somebody that makes $20 million a year gives. I couldn't do it anyway. I can barely do what I'm doing. I, I think it is reasonable though for our government, without getting into politics or for any government, to expect everybody to give according to their means. Now according to our means may mean something different for us than it does to our government, but according to your means. That is, he's saying to those members in Corinth, if some of you have a lot of money, I expect you to give more than those who have very little money, according to your means. So previously, the Corinthian church has started to give or promised to give, but they had not followed through When the need arose, they said, they said on their own, they said, count us in. We want to help too. But what they said and what they did were two different things. God wanted them to be gracious with their giving. Instead, they were gracious with their promising. Lots of promises. They simply were not giving proportionally. That is, the church in Corinth was more affluent than the churches in Macedonia. They could have given far more, but in fact, were giving far less. We see this principle throughout the Bible. And in Luke chapter 21, Jesus notices something spectacular to him. And when Jesus notices things that are spectacular to him, they should be spectacular to us as well. People were coming into the temple area and they were giving their money. As they came in, they had these big bronze horns and as you took your coins out. They didn't have paper money. Money was in coins. You threw your coins in those horns and as it trickled down, it made a, a noise. The bigger the coin, the bigger the noise. The more coins, the more noise. And if you made the horns rumble, Everybody looked at you and went, wow, (laughs) you're really giving the money. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for that member. It was very public. Now we do the opposite because we're so sheepish about giving, and I don't want you to get kudos from us. I want you to get your kudos from God. I want you to get your blessing from God. And so we make it as quiet and nonchalant as possible. We don't even take up an offering in the service anymore. The boxes are there on the left and right, and you just quietly give something if you want to on the way out. We don't have anybody watching. And I hope you're not watching. <laughs> don't sit back there and stare at the boxes as people are walking out. If you do, you, you, come let me know. I'll find volunteer positions for you somewhere in the parking lot or something. <laughs> but some of you don't even do that. You give online. And nobody here knows how much you give or if that you give. But of course, God knows that you're giving. And so they would throw their money into these big horns. And this little old lady comes in, a widow. She got two pennies, what we would call pennies. Two tiny little, we call them widow's mites. These two tiny little coins, a couple of pennies. Now, what can you do in church with a couple of pennies? If you throw a couple pennies in back there today, it's unlikely we're gonna go to the bank and show them those two pennies and build another building with that. There's not a lot we can do with it now. There was not a lot they could do with it then. It wasn't the two pennies. It was the truth behind the pennies. See, Jesus knew her life and her heart. He knew that was her only two pennies. And two pennies isn't much unless it's the only two pennies you got. And she didn't put it in there to be noticed. In fact, you probably couldn't even hear those two little tiny coins. And they are tiny. I've got one in my office. They're little bitty things. They probably couldn't even hear those hit the bottom of that horn, that giving mechanism. But Jesus knew. It was deafening to him. Because she gave all she had. And she didn't give it because she had to. There's not anybody there that would have said, look, you're down to your last two pennies. I think you should throw that in. On the contrary, they would probably have sympathy on her, including Jesus and said, look, you just, you only got two pennies. You go buy you a little bit of lunch with that after the service. You don't, you're not expected to give that. She gave it because she wanted to. She gave all that she had to her God because she loved her God and it moved Jesus that she was willing to trust him with all that she had. Isn't that a beautiful story? You, you, you sense the heart of Jesus when you sense the heart of this poor widow. That's powerful. Now back to our passage in 2 Corinthians. Please note that even though they weren't giving proportionally, again, Paul did not force them or coerce them to give. They had offered to give them money. This was simply a passage uh, that they did not, where he confronts them because they didn't follow through with what they said they were going to do. As I've told you multiple times over the years, I do not look to see who's giving and who's not giving, who's tithing and who's not tithing here at First Baptist Church. But I do know, statistically, as with any congregation, some of you give and some of you do not. Some of you tithe, which is biblically 10%, and some of you give sacrificially, which is more than 10%. Some of you give less than 10%, and statistically, some of you don't give at all. The reason I don't look to see who is giving and who is not is because I don't want it to affect me one way or another as to how I care for you as your pastor. I don't want to give anybody preferential treatment because you give a lot of money, and I don't want anyone to think that I don't love you just because you don't tithe. And I don't have an ulterior motive this morning. I'm not here to trick you into doing anything. While we're certainly not rolling in money, I am happy to say that because of your generosity, all of our bills are paid. And again, I want to thank you for that. When we were a smaller church across the street, we struggled for so many years just to pay our monthly bills. God always provided, by the way, always provided. But there were months where it was really close. God's favor has been upon us. Which reminds me, two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on God's favor. I hope you were here two weeks ago. Do you remember? There was something that I mentioned to you, and I shared a verse with you that I did not explain as well as I intended to and wanted to. In the weekly Digging Deeper podcast we have at First Baptist Church, our associate pastor, Chris Brown, and our connections minister, uh, Jacob Belding, Uh, shared a little bit about that very verse. And so, so that I don't end up on my own bad doctrine of the week comments, I need to clarify a verse I shared with you, and I think it directly applies to this passage this morning. The verse in question, which is a wonderful verse, is in Numbers chapter 24, verse 5. Do you remember this verse By the way, uh, a confession, I shared with you two weeks ago that it was Numbers 23, five. It's actually 24, five. Turns out your pastor's human and I made a typo. So go back and correct that, it's Numbers 24, five. And the statement is this, "'How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, "'your dwelling places, O Israel.'" Now this is a statement from a guy named Balaam. Do you remember Balaam? I mentioned to him a couple weeks ago. He was a prophet of God, but he wasn't a good prophet. Now, he was a genuine prophet, but he was a sorry, no good guy. He's the guy who had the donkey, and his donkey started talking to him. God gave a voice to the donkey. It was an angel speaking through the donkey. And uh, he, he started beating the donkey every time the donkey talked to him, which is a stupid thing to do because oh, the, the donkey kept moving one way or another because there was an angel in the path that would have killed Balaam. So the donkey moved and he would beat the donkey. So finally the donkey started talking. Now, when your donkey starts talking to you, you know you've, you've gone off the rails. So, so that's, that's Balaam. He was hired by this king, uh, oddly enough, has a similar name. The king's name was Balak. He was hired by this king to put a curse on Israel, paid money to, to curse Israel. So he goes up on the mountain and makes sacrifices and uh, when he goes to curse Israel, God speaks to Balaam and says, "Now uh, I don't want you to curse them. I, I tell you what I want you to do instead. I want you to bless them. So Balaam does what God tells him and he blesses them. Well, that made Balak mad. And so they do it a second time and a third time. And by the third time, each time God tells Balaam, I actually, I know you're here to curse them. I want you to bless them instead. So he blesses Israel and Balak was just furious. He says, I'm not paying you nothing. So he left there with no money because he refused to curse Israel. And the reason he refused to curse Israel was because he had been overruled by God. Because God made it very clear and he began to realize this group of people, these Israelites, these Hebrews, they're under the protection of God. Now, in that day, just like in the New Testament and just like in the 21st century, there are different places that people would live. I think the top, top place, the penthouse, what would the top floor super awesome place. For us, it would be the White House. If I lived in the White House, that would be cool, wouldn't it? If you lived in the White House, that'd be fun. Now, they had palaces where the kings lived, the equivalent of the White House. those That's where you got the best food and the most comfortable stay and the prettiest rooms and the best everything. The top, top, top luxury places of the day. And then below that there were compounds where the rich people lived and they would have a a, a courtyard in the middle in all of these rooms around in these large compounds. And then beyond that, you had people living in the walled cities that had the protection of the walls, but they weren't wealthy. They just lived in normal houses, but they were able to afford to live in the city where the protection was. And then beyond that, you had even smaller shanty towns outside of town that had no protection from the walls at all, but it was at least a, a physical structure of some kind. And then beneath that, you had tents. And then beneath tents was a cave. Now, if you're living, you wake up and you're living in a cave, you know things aren't going real well. You know, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it because you're, you're having to fight the wild animals for a place to stay because that's where the animals would stay. And so the only place above or below a tent was a cave. And the truth is sometimes caves were preferable because no wind could come along and blow it away. No rain could come along and drown you out. You were protected in a cave, but just up from a cave was a tent. So there's not a lot of bragging rights if you're living in a tent. If you came up to me this week in the 21st century and I said, hey, where do you live? And you say, well, I live in a tent just up the highway. I would say, oh, that means you're homeless. That's where homeless people live. They live in tents. Now, I don't know of a lot of, now I'm I'm not talking about those high dollar Coleman tents. You get to the store and you go at the KOA. Do they still have KOAs? You go to a campground, you you pay money. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you just don't have anything else. If you tell me that you're living in a tent, it's probably not out of choice. You know I could live in a tent or in a a 10,000 square foot house. I think I'll pick the tent. Nobody picks the tent. Uh, that's why you're homeless. That's what means homeless means. You're living in a tent. And so here Balaam is saying to the people, man, I envy you guys. Look at the verse again. He says this, how beautiful are your tents. And that's not because they were really good tent makers and they just had some super awesome tents. <clears throat> he says, but they're beautiful nonetheless. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Here's what Balaam is saying after being scolded by God three times and commanded by God and forced by God basically to bless them, he says, you guys got it going on. I would rather live in one of your tents than in the king's palace. Because something was happening in the tents of Israel that wasn't happening in the king's palace. They had the favor of God. And that tells me that the favor of God isn't a big house. It's not a fancy car. It's not a big bank account and lots of money, those financial things. Now, God may bless you with that, and I consider every good thing a blessing of God, and you may be blessed with those things, but the favor of God transcends all of that. You may be living in a tent, but if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're under the favor of God. That's the favor of God. We like the money part, (laughs) but the real favor of God transcends that because there are people by the billions in this world who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, never have experienced the mercy of God and the salvation that comes from the resurrection of Jesus. They don't know anything about that and they're living a pointless, meaningless life. And they might say, oh, blessed is your tent because you're under the mercy of God. And so that's the discussion of that pastor. It's, it's this oracle Balaam that he says, your tents are better than palaces. They couldn't lose from winning because they were blessed by God. And that's a pretty good description of the Macedonian churches. Were they poor? Yes. Were they under threat all the time? Absolutely but they considered themselves blessed even in their poverty and difficulty because they were believers in Jesus Christ. They knew that God loved them and that's the biblical favor of God. Now that said, in light of this passage and others, I want you to know a couple of important things and we'll go with this today. Number one, if you're not giving, even though it won't affect your relationship with me because I don't know if you give or not. It will affect your relationship with God because he knows if you're giving or not. God will never say it's none of his business. He does know, and he expects people to tithe. Let me say that again. God expects you to give. It's between you and him, but he does expect you to give. Preachers didn't just make that up. It's in the Bible in many, many places, including these passages God expects you to give to him. In the end, it's a matter of trust. Does God need your money? No, he doesn't need anything from us. God could turn those stones into cash tomorrow or today. But he calls us to give to him to demonstrate that we trust him. He expects you and I to trust him with everything in our life, including our finances. And not just hypothetically. If anybody says, God, I trust you. I really do. I'm not giving you any of my money, but I trust you. Then you don't trust God. You need to be honest with yourself about that. And your relationship with him will never grow to where it needs to be if you don't trust your Savior. As your pastor, that concerns me deeply because I want you to grow. In the way of testimony, and I, I, forgive me ahead of time, I'm, I'm not saying this to be braggy at all. I need you to know this about your pastor, Cherry and I tithe. We have always tithed. We spent our wedding night in the great, grand city of Weatherford. Um, we, uh, we got married in Graham and went to Weatherford. And so the first time we ever went to church together as a married couple was that Sunday morning, which is just down the road. Now here's the ironic thing. It, when we spent our first night in Weatherford, Texas at a bed and breakfast, we had no idea where Azel was. Never heard of that. it, didn't know anything about Azel. Didn't know his own on a map. If, you, if you'd asked us there in Weatherford, where's Azel, Texas? We would have said, who, what? We don't know. We didn't know that within a week, we would be contacted by the pulpit committee here to come in view of a call just a few weeks after that. It's funny how God works. So I want to say that when we woke up our first morning together that Sunday morning, amazingly, God led us to First Baptist Hazel. No, that didn't happen. Sorry, we didn't know where age was. We went to First Baptist Church in Weatherford, and we tithed on that Sunday, and we have been tithing ever since. Not because we're any great people or good people. No, we tithe simply because that's what God expects his people to do. I was blessed with a mom and a dad, faithful Southern Baptists and godly people, godly Christians. Many of you have met them before they passed away, and they taught us to tithe. They gave us a little allowance every week, and every Sunday morning, they expected, when that When that offering plate was passed, they would be watching us because they required us to tithe. It was their money. They gave it to us. And they knew what what a tithe was, by the way. There was no cheating mom and dad because they are the one that gave us the money. And so they made us tithe every week from our allowance. They taught us that principle of tithing. And by the way, parents, godly parents, you teach that principle to their children. And so we tithe. We've learned to do that. God expects us to do that. Now I want to say that in that faithfulness, God has blessed us and he certainly has. But whether he blesses us or not, he still expects us to give. Cherry and I owe him everything. He's been so wonderful to us, saved us, forgiven us, blessed us, redeemed us, given us three beautiful children uh, who are turning out pretty good by the way, And uh, we're thankful for all. And he's allowed us to stay here all of these years, 25, going on 26 years now. So 10% doesn't sound like that much. So give or don't give. I'll never know, but God will. Second, there is opportunity here. I want you to know that, and not in some just hypothetical general sense, I mean in a literal sense, there is opportunity here as God continues to bless our church and he has blessed our church. He's given us opportunity to move forward in ministry, in missions, in salvations, in things that matter to him, in things that produce real fruit in his kingdom. When I challenged the church previously, more than 20 years ago, to build this building, I tried to help vision cast with them the amazing things that God could do and would do if they would give sacrificially so that we could move over here and build this church. And they gave and God blessed. And here we are. I dreamed of baptizing more people than we had ever baptized. I I dreamed of doing mission work on a far greater level and providing family ministry on a scale that we just couldn't do in that building over there. Today, I believe that God is offering you the same challenge. I see a day coming here in this place where God is pouring people into his kingdom where we have multiple mission projects every year and teams going throughout the world to share the gospel. Recently, we have at times exceeded over 100 kids on Wednesday night in our youth room, which doesn't hold 100 by the way, we just pack them in there like sardines. We have at times hit nearly 100 or over 100 in our children's ministry on Sunday morning in a room that is not built for 100 kids. I don't even fathom a hundred kids. That's like you know, 500 adults. I mean, that's, that's a lot of energy in one room. And we don't have room for them. I envision a day, and it won't be even that long, where we have four or five or 600 children on a Sunday morning and five or six or 700 youth on a Wednesday night. But where are we gonna put them? Not in this building. It's not going to happen. There simply isn't enough room. We can't even fit that many people in this sanctuary. So what are we gonna do? Well, God is giving us opportunity. Right now, we need to move forward, and it is time to do that. Next week, in the State of the Church Address, I will be sharing with you specifically about that. But we can't rebuild right now. We can't do it. I want to, we need to. But we can't do it because we still owe money on this building. All these years later, we're still slowly paying off the note. We owe about a million dollars. And if we are going to move forward to build another building, we need to retire this debt. And I know it's not fun, it's not exciting, we don't get to see anything come up or anything, but we need to get rid of this bottleneck so that we can move forward as a family. Now, a million dollars sounds like a lot of money, and if, if it all comes from you, it is a lot of money. And by the way, if you want to write a check for a million dollars, thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> but chances are you don't have that kind of money. Now collectively, it is entirely possible for us to pay off that debt this year. And I'm asking you and challenging you if you would consider doing that. If you don't, if you're sitting out there thinking, oh, here's the shakedown, no, no. Don't you give a penny. I don't want a penny. I only want people to give who have a heart to give and God has led you to give. But I'm telling you, it will make a difference in the kingdom. Oh, the Macedonians, they would start reaching for their change immediately because that was the kind of people that they were. So today, I wanna give you that opportunity. Not a demand, not a manipulation, just an opportunity. It's time for us to pay off our debt. If you choose to give, it is same principle, it will be between you and your God. Don't come up to me and say, "Pastor, I get no. I don't want to you. I don't want to know." God will I can't bless you. I'm not God. But God will know and he will bless you. It's between you and him. I know he will challenge you according to your ability to receive it or not. And I know he will love you whether you give or not. But we do have that need right now and we can't move forward without it. Winston Churchill, who was prime minister during World War II in England, as you know, he said this, in the midst of a raging war, a world war. He said, we shall neither fail nor falter. We shall not weaken or tire. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. And they did. I feel strongly that God is challenging us, like the church in Corinth, to finish the job according to his plan. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the privilege of getting to give. And while it is a private matter between us and you, I don't wanna have any loud brass horns making noise as we give. There's no blessing in that. I'd rather hear my God say well done, good and faithful servant on judgment day. So Father, we ask and pray that you would lead in our hearts according to our faith and our ability to give what you want us to give, when you want us to give it, where you want us to invest it. And I pray that we're obedient to you. Thank you for that opportunity. we're praying no one's looking around that's nothing flashy nothing gaudy we're not taking an offering it's just up to you and your God to quietly give right now this is your opportunity to draw close to your God would you be willing to at least say to your God God I pray that you would speak to my heart what do you want me to do what do you want me to do not the preacher not somebody else what do you want me to and then honor that maybe god is calling you or your family to join with first baptist church and god has been speaking to you you know today's the day now's the time just come down and say pastor we'd like to join or maybe you want to surrender your life to the lordship of jesus christ the best time to do that is right now just come down and say pastor i want to give my life to jesus and we'll talk and we'll pray or you just want to come and kneel and pray god is providing that opportunity Briefly, right now, they're right here. Would you stand, no one's looking around, all heads are bowed, all eyes are closed, and as you pray, and as you stand,